You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 16th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. NATO calls on Turkey to hurry up and give Finland and Sweden's membership bids the go-ahead. Will two huge earthquakes in Turkey and Syria help al-Assad lessen his pariah status? And would you eat Wagyu steak from a vending machine? I'm Georgina Godwin. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you live from our studios here at Midori House in London. My guests, Daniela Pellet and John Ellidge, will discuss some of the day's big stories. Plus, a fresh letter from our New York radio correspondent has landed on the Monocle Daily doormat. Do stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. Hello, I'm Georgina Godwin, and as I said, my guest today, Daniela Pella, she's managing editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, and the columnist and author John Ellidge. And I have just discovered that you both share a passion for for local history museums. I think I think passion is is about right, actually. Yeah, I go with passion. Yeah, mm-hmm. isn't that about right? Yeah. Why? I mean, is there anything finer than staying in a Premier Inn, other budget hotels are available, and visiting a, a sequence of extremely obscure museums in really, really out of the way places in small British towns. I mean, I just love finding out what places think of themselves and the sort of how they project themselves to the world. Um, my my favourite is there's a local history museum in the Kentish Seaside Resort of Whitstable, which has an entire room dedicated to the life and works of the actor Peter Cushing. At no point in which does it mention that he lived in Whitstable for five years of his life, which is the only reason for doing it. <laughs> it's just it just it's suddenly it's about Peter Cushing. It's amazing. That's wonderful, Daniela. You've just been to one this week. Um, I yes, I mean the, ne- nearly a week goes by without. Um, <laughs> the highlights are the Coffin Works Museum in Birmingham which I have to say is probably in the top 10 museums of my life. And um, on a smaller scale, but kind of slightly baffling, was the Mayflower Museum in Portsmouth, which I was at a couple of days ago. With the Coffin Museum, have coffins changed a great deal in the last century or so? Well, this is more about coffin furniture and mm-hmm. shrouds and a family-owned business that was that was based in this part of Birmingham for more than 100 years and so it also it took in it ticked all all the local history boxes social history class politics gender equality I, I had to have a sit-down and a cup of tea afterwards. Uh, it sounds absolutely wonderful. Before we move on, John, you've just finished a book. That's very exciting. I have. It may, I, I said this in the context of I have absolutely nothing to say for myself because I've been sat in front of a laptop for months on end uh, and I'm now sort of wandering around in just sort of a gleeful cloud. And what is the uh, book? The book is A History of the World Through Strange or Unusual Borders. So it's 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 quite it's it, it it's never going to stop being topical. I hope. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds wonderful. Well, of course, trouble on the border between Turkey and Syria and many other borders too. But the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg was in Ankara. Now he's told Turkey that the time is now for it to ratify applications by Finland and Sweden to join NATO. Turkey says Sweden harbors members of the Kurdistan Workers Party, the PKK, which is seen as a terrorist group by Turkey. But it might be possible to ratify Finland's membership. Stoltenberg has moved on to the south of the country and has promised the military alliance will be sending tens of thousands of tents to help the victims of the recent earthquake. Daniela, why does Erdogan hate the PKK so much? Well, I mean, it's not just um, his government that view it as a, 
um, as a terrorist organization. But this is uh, an ongoing issue about um, the autonomy um, of Kurdish people in uh, in Turkey. This is a, it's a regional issue as well. But I think this, uh, in a way, has less to do with the PKK and also his other bugba, the followers of Fethullah Gulen, um, who he blames for a failed 2016 coup. And this is more about um, a classic Erdogan move of distraction from domestic problems, you know, and how he can look as a, as a strong man on, on the world stage. I mean, he's made some demands of... Um, Sweden and Finland, for instance, he's asked them to clamp down on the PKK, which they have done, but they won't go as far as he actually wants, which is just to deport whoever he doesn't particularly like. It is always really useful for leaders such as Erdogan to have a common enemy, somebody that opposes their national projects and national security. And he has been in increasing amounts of trouble over the last few years. And the Turkey's response to the, the earthquake is only going to exacerbate that. Absolutely. John, I wonder how intractable Erdogan is. Do you think he could be persuaded to change his mind on Sweden? Um, well, I, I should I should do what you're never supposed to do in these situations and say up front, I'm, I'm far from an expert on, on the region. Uh, but, but I mean, looking at the history of these kind of alliances... Um, they are. They are. They are fundamental. NATO is like all these things. Fundamentally, an alliance of, of of countries with shared interests, and and the way those often work is through horse trading. Right? Like it's like the the, the reason uh, the Nordic countries are currently going so big on on the post on the aid after the earthquake is because it's you know it, we scratch your back to some extent, mm. isn't it? So it's. I mean, I, I I guess it depends on 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 how great his price is at this stage. Um. I I mean the the, the other factor I think that probably needs consideration. Is there is, as I understand, it, a general election coming up in Turkey in May, uh, and that's you know that that's obviously it, it, that is particularly a situation in which it is useful for for strongman leaders to be going around uh, throwing their weight around a bit about common enemies and so on. Mm. So that I wonder if that might make it harder than it would have been otherwise. I mean, do you think that election will go ahead, Daniel? Well, that's, that, that's the next question yeah. as well. Will it will it go ahead? It, it doesn't look. Uh, it it doesn't look look great for him, and in, in any case, you know, previous elections have not necessarily been uh, fulfilled all the exact perfect um, democratic conditions. But he is under a lot of pressure at the moment. I mean, one of the reasons why the 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 the, the death toll and casualty toll in Turkey is so awful is they've had quite t- strict anti uh, uh, you know building re- regulations to deal with this kind of peril for years and years and due to corruption and mismanagement it's just been completely ignored um and that well that he's been he's been head of state for the last 20 years that reflects on him mm, absolutely i wonder if finland would join without sweden i mean john finland and and russia have i think it's the longest land border ever anywhere it's an enormous shared border and as i understand it it's also relatively porous i think like people is quite because it's always sort of northern northern forests and so on um uh, it, it does seem to be uh, people cross it quite regularly for things like, as I understand it, bear hunting is illegal in Finland. So, so the Finns go across to, to Russian Karelia to, to 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 indulge in their bear shooting activities. So again, you know, that's that that presumably is going to. I would be more worried about the situation if I were Finland than if I were Sweden. Absolutely. It's a much more precarious position. But do you think, Daniela, then, if either Sweden or Finland were attacked before the NATO accession, NATO would still come to their aid? I mean, they are 
very, very, very NATO adjacent, and they have been for for a long time. And I, I don't think that we should catastrophize about any idea of Russia directly attacking um, either of those countries. I mean, the the the, the border with, uh, with Russia and Finland is is very long; it's very porous, but that's also been part of a, a Finnish defence strategy for a long time. It's militarily strong. Um, I think it's very likely that um, that both will join. I think it's more likely that Finland will join um, before Sweden. I mean, they've, they've got a sort of artificial deadline of, of, the, of this July. Um, but when either or both of them join, that's really when the tensions will ramp up because Russia has made it quite clear that it's going to have consequences. And I don't think this we should think that this should be military action. There are a myriad of hybrid um, methods by which uh, Russia can exert itself in this direction. Mm. Just going back to a point you made earlier, John, Stoltenberg has promised tens of thousands of tents uh, to help with the earthquake. Is this meant to be a carrot for Turkey? Will, 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 is it, we'll give you help, but you must comply on this? I mean, I don't, I don't think it'll be that explicit, but that's clearly the message, isn't it? It's clearly like meant to be, you know, it is better to be inside the club. There are all these benefits. And there is, there is, a, there is a history of this stuff. I mean, I... Uh, I mean, as I understand it, there was a point in the in the late nineties where uh, where Greece and Turkey helped each other out with 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 uh, the issues that arose from from earlier natural disasters, uh, and obviously those two countries have a have have tensions in their own history, uh, but that kind of cooperation was kind of enough to get them over the line to cooperate. Mm. Um, so so I I can imagine that this would be. Even if it's just in giving Erdogan a certain amount of political cover for something that is possibly inevitable anyway. I mean, as you say, NATO is not the only organisation to have offered help. The UN's promised aid. Many countries from around the world have been involved with the rescue effort, including those like Greece that don't have a good relationship with Damascus or with Ankara. Whilst many Turks have expressed their anger with Erdogan over the lives lost to poor government response, I wonder, Daniela, if this could be his international moment and and could Syria's Bashar al-Assad benefit from the same devastation? How might they use so-called earthquake diplomacy to reset international relations? Well, certainly um, Assad and and Erdogan are in different positions Erdogan has is has a competitive relationship with the international community, but Assad's relationship is largely broken down after more than ten years of uh, of of war in his country and the brutal repression of the uh, of the Syrian uprising. And it's impossible not to think that he hasn't been flexing his diplomatic muscles here. Um, the northwest of Syria, where there are some rebel-held areas still, uh, has had only one crossing open, the Bab al-Hawa crossing from Turkey, for instance. That's the only way um, into it for the last, uh, I think, six years. And uh, obviously, this has hampered aid efforts enormously. He's waited more than a week to finally allow two other crossing points to be opened as a gesture of goodwill for a period of three months. But this has had devastating effects. You know, an area which has already been hit incredibly hard by war and now um, bringing aid more than a week later... um, I mean, the death toll, I think the UN estimates the death toll just in that region is approaching four and a half thousand. And that is inevitably going to rise even further. I mean, how far has, has this earthquake laid bare the true situation in Syria? It's been closed to outside eyes for so long. Suddenly we're seeing really this absolutely failed state. 
I mean, the, the really, really sad thing is that it, no one cares anymore. I mean, people had stopped caring about Syria a long time ago. And when ISIS was making headline news, that was kind of, that was the, the big deal. That was some sort of dramatic uh, issue. When all along, really, it's been the regime of, of Assad that's been um, inflicting uh, the greatest amount of havoc. However, at the same time, there are those who, in the international community who will be quite happy at this opportunity to bring Damascus back into the fold slightly. And you know, talking about earthquake diplomacy, we've seen that with Saudi Arabia um, delivering aid. Um, you know, there are countries that previous involvement was just to support the opposition that are now mm, judging that, well, you know, the cards have fallen where they have. Let's see what the next steps are. Mm. John, I wonder if you can think of other examples of leaders successfully using disasters to bolster their position. A certain blonde man and a war come to mind. I'm clearly very, very tired. Um. <laughs> I, 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 can think of, I can think of several blonde men and several wars. I mean, so. Well, I mean, the, the one that would leap to my mind would actually be um, someone who's in a very different category, whatever one's politics would be Margaret Thatcher, very successfully used the... Uh, the Falklands War, which, to be fair, she did not in any way seek out. Mm. The Argentinian invasion of, of islands in the, in the South Atlantic, which um, complicated history, obviously, but the people there do clearly want to remain British subjects. Uh, that was clearly a big... That had been a very difficult period for, for her government with, with an economic crisis. And and that did turn... The, 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 the rise of the patriotism... The, the, the burst of patriotism that followed that war did kind of help push her over the line mm. into the 1983 mm. landslide. I I also wonder, I mean, what we feel about Zelensky and the war in Ukraine, because it's, I mean, Keir Starmer, it's just been announced, was there today. And every time there's some kind of problem within oh, British politics, it seems like poor old Zelensky's kind of held up as this, you know, prop. Um, it, it's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, obviously, he has very important things to say to the world. But I would say there's a rather cynical use of him by Western leaders. Well, definitely. And I'm sure he exploits it as well, really, and says, right, cynically use me. But hello, I would like some uh, some some um, serious, <laughs> some serious weaponry um, as well. There's always been an element of this kind of virtue signaling. You know, we, we have the photo shoots of people, celebrities and politicians going to disaster zones and walking around as if, you know, great, that's going to make me feel much better. Uh, it's also part of what we expect from the, the media um, the media, the media spectacle, um, and it, it so happens that a, a photo shoot with Zelensky is much more, um, well, it's much easier uh, to organise, and it looks much better than touring a horribly destroyed earthquake-hit um, areas. Yeah, absolutely. But it does feel like these kind of natural disasters can have a sort of double-edged effect. Or on the one hand, they can kind of cause this sort of rally-around-the-flag effect for, for domestic leaders. But on the other hand, they can just lay bare how useless a state is at dealing with, uh, uh, dealing with a crisis. I mean, it doesn't, you don't have to kind of look at a failed state to do that. Just thinking back to, to um, Hurricane Katrina in, was it, 2005, felt like a key moment in, in the US turning against the Bush administration. Um, so it does. It does kind of feel like. I, I wonder if there are if, if parts of the international community are kind of like re-embracing Assad at the exact point. Um, his his domestic authority is going to be severely weakened. Mm. And I mean, I wonder if this quake is likely to change anything within Syria. Well, I mean, you would have thought that uh, things couldn't get any worse, and 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 then they do. Um, but I mean, at the situation in terms of 
international aid, you could compare it maybe to that in Afghanistan. So the, the Taliban took over, the, con- in, in the country is destroyed and deteriorating in terms of human rights and so on. But that creates a humanitarian crisis where the regime says, if unless you deliver humanitarian aid, you're cutting your nose off to spite your face because the people are the ones who are really suffering. And it's the same argument that um, that Assad can make here. Although the big thing is the, the sanctions against him and, and senior members of the of the regime that is unlikely to uh, to change. But yeah, it's inevitable that international aid creates new relations and creates relations with people who are not necessarily close allies. And we've seen this in, in Turkey as well. You know, this 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 happens indeed in, in 1999. This happened with the the previous earthquake where Greece sent aid. And here, Armenia and Turkey have opened their borders for the first time in 35 years. You know, you see this kind of outpouring of of bonhomie, um, a lot of it performative. Mm. But there, I, I think that each time this happens, this does leave a longer lasting uh, trace. And I mean, the, the Western world has been involved so many times, as you, as you were saying, talking about Afghanistan, for instance, about regime change. Is there any, is there any way that there could be a, a change of leadership in Syria? Will Assad go? Oh, I think I think we are so 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 too, so late on this, and I, very uh, unpopularly amongst uh, sort of limp-wristed liberal circles. I think I was quite an early fan of of intervention in in the Syrian war because it could not have been any more disastrous than than this shameful lack of intervention that we have. Um, I think Assad will go at a time of his and his patrons choosing. There probably remains a nice retirement villa awaiting for him in some remote uh, uh, country but this earthquake isn't going to be the thing that does it. Well of course Assad's only 57 so it's not like old age is going to force him out of office but how old is old? I mean I used to think that 60 was completely past it and as I age my opinions change. What do you think John? What's old? As I understand it 42 is now in your late 20s is the line. (laughs) Um, I mean, clearly the meaning of old age has changed radically. If you kind of, uh, if you watch television, even from like the 1980s, uh, there'll be people who look quite elderly who will be in their 50s and 60s. So, uh, and and people who look middle-aged who are 25. Um, I think, I think there are a number of reasons for that. I do think a a big one is that we do these days have this sort of extended adolescence coming from the fact that it's so much more difficult to buy a house Mm, and start a family than once was. Absolutely. What about you, Daniela? Well, I think um, I think that John and I, with our love of uh, local history, and you you're know, already ninety-seven. Well, we th- I think we, we we I think there's a part of us that think it's it's fun and charming now because we are essentially youthful at heart. And I'm sure we when we walk around our national trust properties, we're thinking, well, we're not like those people buying tea towels, even as I buy my own tea towel. <laughs> so I think that's that's a, an element. But um, you know, I, I'm starting. I turned fifty this year. I'm starting to ache and. Um, croak and disintegrate in many ways, but I, um, I keep going. My 94-year-old father can do a plank far longer than I can. So that's what I'm thinking I'm going to aim for. Well, that's very impressive. I mean, of course, the developed world is facing a problem with ageing populations. One country that's particularly affected is South Korea, where over 65s enjoy free subway travel. But as the population ages and the policy gets more expensive, some city authorities there are threatening to raise 
the age threshold or lift fares for other passengers unless the national government intervenes. And I wonder, is this fair? Should the young be forced to pay for the old? It, it seems terribly unfair to me, but it does seem to be the way of the world. I mean, just looking at what's happening in... In, in, in this country at the moment, we've recently had discussion of, of whether or not it might, a way of getting uh, older people back into the workforce might be to make sure they don't pay income taxes. Uh, and as it stands, we've, we've loaded a whole load of extra costs onto the younger generation already, plus there's the aforementioned house prices to deal with, plus student debt and so on. It does sometimes feel like, as a society... Um, we are constantly trying to bribe the older generation with money, while take, which is being funded by the young. Um, I, that, I think Britain is particularly bad for that, but I think we're far from unique. Mm. I mean, you're absolutely right in, in that uh, that was the generation that could f- afford to own their own homes. They have good pensions. They had free university. Uh, they screwed up the environment, <laughs> leaving a mess for the next generation. But the other side of the argument is that those in ill health and without resources, the poor and elderly, seem to be flung on the scrap heap. Those people did pay their taxes, they contributed to society. Surely we owe them a debt, Daniela? Well, I think we have to pay for it one way or another. And allowing um, pensioners free travel and other benefits, I mean, it sounds terribly patronising, but it keeps them healthy, it keeps them engaged with the world. Uh, It will save, you know, people working later in life. And a lot of times voluntarily as well. It gets pretty boring. People used to retire at 60 and go to an old age people's home and, and you know knit or whatever. And no one expects that anymore. I like knitting, by the way. But um, Ironic. Youthful knitting, I hope. Youthful, youthful <laughs> knitting, exactly. But unless we invest in, uh, in older people, um, then the actual, you know, if you look at it in a cynical way, the actual burden on society is much higher. It costs a lot more to look after people who are old, sick, depressed failing in health and that's something that we, we, we that we have to do whether we like it or not i mean i think the i think the other the other issue we have is that not everybody ages at the same rate um so obviously there's a lot of in multiple countries we're having there are discussions going on about whether or not we should be raising pension ages and so on uh if you do the kind of work that, that they think all of us in in this room do to some extent um that the idea of working to 70 is not that threatening really like we can all sit around microphones or behind inevitable or, I would we, say. We, yes indeed <laughs> but if you're doing a harder more physical job it's a very different equation um so, so I, 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 the more I look at this, the more I think actually that the, the, it all just makes a very strong argument for for progressive taxation. And, and taxation of wealth as well, frankly. Well, of course, because I mean, plenty of old, elderly people do have the resources to look after themselves. And here, particularly in this country, benefits for the elderly, such as free travel or television licenses, are, are free. Uh, could they be means tested? I think that's a, a bad idea because I think it also sends um, a very powerful message. It sends a message about how we view older people and the respect with which we treat them and how much we value them. Um, the same same thing as, as um, child benefit. You know, should it be means tested beyond how it is? And I think we're sending a message saying this is what we value and we are going to invest in it. Um, I mean, obviously I haven't looked at the at the numbers, but I can't imagine that free bus travel for the over 65s is the key to uh, you know, re- refunding the NHS or anything. And sometimes I think with taxation and with benefits, sometimes you also need to send a, a social message as well. And that has that has enormous benefit. Well, most people do expect to have to tighten their belts a little after they've stopped working. But 
If you're going to shell out for little luxuries, would you buy them from a vending machine? I ask because Japan's ailing vending machine industry is looking to indulgences like caviar and fresh sashimi, sashimi I can't say it, wagyu steak, <laughs> <laughs> to stymie its dec- decades-long decline. So, I mean, would you buy caviar from a vending machine, John? Absolutely not. I'm horrified by this story. Just, I mean, like re- reading it, 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 these are like refrigerated vending machines. It's meant, to, but like, these are things that you definitely want to eat fresh, aren't they? Well, particularly uh, sashimi. Yes, exactly. Like, how, how, how much trust? do you have that the, 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 the vending machine was restocked this morning? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, vending machines boomed, particularly in Japan because of COVID. People weren't able to go out to restaurants. But post-COVID, it seems diners are still reluctant to return in Japan. Has your social life bounced back to normal, Daniela? Um... It, it kind of has. I mean, like, what I do quite enjoy is using, uh, having been able to use this as an excuse as well. I think expectations have changed uh, of when it comes to, to socialising. Um, I think when it comes to luxury um, meals at home, it's a bit different whether it's just for you or if you're sharing it with other people. So are you getting a Wagyu beef burger for one or is this like a dinner party um, that you can share with other people. And would you buy that Wagyu beef burger from a vending machine? Yeah, I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> so no. <laughs> I'm trying to think of something equally luxurious that's vegetarian that you I, might... You know, the, the part, part of me, and I'm sure this is the same for, for lots of people, I mean, lockdowns and, and COVID were, were awful and extremely hard on our mental and our physical health. But there is a small part of me that relished that um, heightened level of privacy as well and the, the, the fact that social expectations... Um, were different and I quite like the idea of getting something from a vending machine taking it home uh, squirreling it away either with myself or or sharing it with loved ones it's absolutely fine by me do you, th- do you any idea why they aren't a big industry here in Britain uh, apparently Japan has very low crime um, and I just sort of imagine like these sort of vending machines, you put them in a city like London, they're going to get vandalised and broken into quite quickly, I think. Not not saying that London is some kind of like crime-ridden hellhole, but it just it just feels like a target. It just feels like the kind of thing that someone somewhere is going to want to, to, to have a go at. Is it also that we don't like our, our choices constrained? I mean, do we tend to yearn for the biggest possible freedom of choice? I think it's purely an, 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 an image uh, idea and the image that unless your food is such a human need, you know, unless you're interacting with other people as you go about consuming it or you go about obtaining it, then that's um, that's quite weird. I mean, why most of the time now? Why do we need waiters um, in a restaurant? Why can't we? Why 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 cut out? Why can't we cut out the middle person? There isn't really any particular reason except this is part of the experience. The service we all notice if the service is good as a restaurant, we could just like put our choice into a keypad and the the food um, appear by robot. And there've been all these trials of it, but it's never gone beyond a gimmick. I think people like to eat around people. That's Sooner or later, true. a restaurant is going to appear that delivers your food by drone as a novelty. I'd, and that's going quite, to happen, I'd probably it? quite enjoy that. <laughs> well, our correspondent, uh, our New York correspondent, Henry Reese Sheridan, has something to say about freedom of choice. For time immemorial, the pursuit of freedom in its many aspects has been one of the fundamental animating forces of humankind. And yet, many of us fortunate enough to have been born extremely free, consistently find ways to piss our lives away all by ourselves. Some of us just aren't well suited to the open-endedness of life.
I was prompted to meditate on these themes by the contrasting fates of two New York City birds who have been in the news recently. One of the birds I've already mentioned a few weeks ago, a pigeon who was found in Madison Square Park. There was initially some confusion over the bird's species because of its unusual pink colour. But investigators later determined it was a king pigeon, a white domesticated bird, that had been dyed pink, then released. Why would anyone do such a thing? The most plausible theory the police have hit on is that the bird was dyed and released as part of a gender reveal celebration. These are events where the presumed gender of an unborn child is revealed, often involving something happening with pink stuff if the baby is a female, or blue stuff if the baby is a male. There are many problems with gender reveal parties. Aside from reinforcing gender stereotypes, they've also posed an immediate physical threat on a surprising number of occasions. In October of 2019, a woman in Knoxville, Iowa, was killed by flying shrapnel from the explosion of a homemade device packed with gunpowder and coloured baby powder, meant to reveal her grandchild's gender. Gary Roseboom is a retired pastor in town and has lived in Knoxville for more than two decades. He tells us the tragedy is still sinking in. My heart just sank for the family. I mean, it, it's something that's supposed to be fun and exciting and you... You know, you have your family there. In September of 2020, a gender reveal pyrotechnic device started the El Dorado fire in California. The fire went on to burn thousands of acres, destroy homes, prompt evacuations, and cause to the death of one firefighter. One couple faces 20 years behind bars after their gender reveal allegedly sparked a fire that killed a firefighter. And in September of last year, a couple in Mato Grosso, in Brazil, went to an 18-meter waterfall in a river that is the main drinking source of fresh water for the city of Tangara de Serra, and dyed the waterfall blue to reveal that they were expecting a boy. The pink king pigeon found in Madison Square Park appeared to have been recruited, surely against its will, to be a prop in a gender reveal stunt. Even leaving the discoloration out of it, the pigeon wouldn't have coped well with freedom. King pigeons can't fly very well. But their white colour means they have unfortunately been mistaken for doves and used in releases at events. This happened at a 9-11 memorial event in 2002. It was meant to culminate in the spectacle of a flock of doves released over the Hudson River. But it ended in tragedy when the birds turned out to be king pigeons and ended up plunging into the river and hitting windows on buildings and cars. Even when they're not mistaken for doves, it's not like the average life of a king pigeon specimen is to be envied. They're normally bred for food and kept in cages. Nonetheless, I can't say I wouldn't choose a lifetime in captivity than being eaten over being dyed pink and released into an indifferent and bewildering world that I'm unprepared for. But we're not all king pigeons. Some relish freedom, even if they've never known it. Earlier this month, Flaco, a Eurasian eagle owl, escaped from Central Park Zoo after his enclosure was vandalised. Despite the zoo staff's intensive efforts, Flaco evaded recapture. There were well-founded concerns for his well-being. Not once in Flaco's 13-year life had he fended for himself, 
it absolutely needs to be captured. Having been a captive bird for a long time, for years, it's surely lost its hunting skills. It's lost the skills it needs to survive on its own. But on Saturday night, jubilation erupted as Flaco was observed to regurgitate a pellet of rat fur and bones in Central Park. The owl had learned to catch its own prey. Flaco was loving his new life. And so we have a tale of two birds. One, freed by a senseless act of vandalism, is flourishing. The other, freed in the senseless act of celebrating new life, perished with its dignity in tatters. There are so many profound lessons to take from this, and I'm going to do you the favour of letting you tease them out on your own. That was our New York radio correspondent, Henry Reese Sheridan. Thanks for the invitation, Henry, but sometimes the early bird gets the worm and sometimes the early bird gets frozen to death. And that's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thank you to my panellists today, Daniela Pellet and John Elledge. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett, researched by Andre Nikolai Pamintuan, and our sound engineer was Callum McLean with editing assistance from Emily Sands. I'm Georgina Godwin. I'll be back on the Monocle Daily same time tomorrow. Goodbye. And thanks for listening.